Join us for Mountain Land Physical Therapy's 7th Annual Running Summit Conference, which will take place on September 29th and go through October 1st, taking place in awesome Park City, Utah. Led by the experts in the field of running medicine, the Mountain Land Running Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding runner's health and the innovative treatment plans now available. Participants can also earn up to 12 and a half CEU credits and can enjoy various recreational activities in Park City. Early bird pricing available, so buy now. Welcome to episode 70 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hederscheidt from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine, and here with my co-host, Jeremy Stoker. How are you, Jeremy? Brian? Good. How are you? Good. Anything happening new? Um, no, we kind of started marathon season. That's fun. We had the Ogden Marathon this last weekend and uh, kind of opening up. It's good times. You guys were busy down in St. George, too, with the triathlon. Wasn't the Ironman? The, the yeah, the World Championships yeah. were a few weeks ago down there, which is fun. That was the 2021 right. World Championships. Yeah, I feel like uh, just with all that has happened, it's nice to have races up again, and I feel like I'm able to see more running patients again. Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but I'm glad to see him a little bit more. <laughs> Not that we actually want to see running patients, right? We don't want anybody to be injured, but uh, it's great that they are out there taking part in the activities again, and, yep. and the injuries are inevitable, so we'll, we'll certainly see them for that purpose, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, don't forget your make your plans for the Running Summit for 2022. Uh, again, this is September 29th through October 1st up at the Sheraton Park City in Park City, Utah. Check out the schedule and the speakers are on our website at summit.mlrehab.com. Uh, you can check out all the, the great uh, topics, including uh, return to running following injury or surgery, nutrition and supplements for the distance runner, foot core training uh, with speakers such as Eric Hegedus, Dan Cobian, Emily Krause, and Irene Davis. So please join us up at the Sheraton Park City in September 29th through October 1st. And again, as always, send questions and feedback to podcast at mlrehab.com. Love getting your feedback and suggestions for future guests. All right. Today, we are going to talk with Michelle Barrick from California State University, Long Beach, about dietary supplements and pre-adolescent endurance runners. Dr. Michelle Barrick is an associate professor of nutrition and dietetics at California State University, Long Beach, and a board-certified specialist in sports dietetics. She has published research on topics addressing nutrition and bone health in youth and collegiate endurance runners and the prevalence and factors associated with dietary supplement use in athletes. Dr. Barrick ran competitively in high school and college and currently enjoys enjoys training for local road races, cooking, and spending time with her husband and three kids. Welcome, Michelle, and thank you for joining us. Okay, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Definitely excited to have you on this podcast. You have been a on our list uh, to reach out to and invite at some point. Uh, certainly, we've followed your work over the years. Uh, much of it has been in collaboration with some of our prior guests, uh, such as Mitch Rao and Adam 1040 and, and, and others for sure. Uh, but we're really excited to hear what you have to say. Your work in nutrition area and running is very prolific. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to work with uh, Adam and Mitch and um, yeah, just enjoy collaborating and all the research opportunities I have. Excellent. All right. Well, maybe let's start off. One of the things we like to do in our podcast is just give our listeners a, a bit of a sense of the background of our guests. So maybe describe a little bit of your background in terms of how you got interested in this general area uh, as a profession, but also your specific research interests within that area. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess my interest in this whole area started a um 
long while back when I started running in high school. So I um, ran competitively in high school and really fell in love with the sport, love the people, love the coaches, just love the whole environment and just the sport itself. Um, but I did experience injuries and had peers that had injuries and um you know, also really appreciated how um, nutrition affected how I felt when I performed. So it was something I became interested in and um, further was able to explore in college and graduate school, um, had the opportunity to work with Dr. Mitrao and Dr. Jean Nichols at San Diego State on a study looking at high school um, athletes, female high school athletes and prevalence of injury and other factors associated with injury and uh, bone density and prevalence of low bone density. And it was just a whole field that I was just opened my eyes in terms of this whole area, um, as well as the recognition that was at the time largely understudied in youth athletes and um, was a need, there was a need to, to learn more. So um, was also um, had a mentor, Dr. Raylia Nativ at UCLA. I ran at UCLA and she was our team doctor and she um, was really a pioneer, is a pioneer in this area of um the female and now male athlete triad. So just um, had the benefit of, of learning from many um, of these uh, pioneers in, in the area and the research and um, was really inspired to, to learn more. So my main area is looking at um, prevalence of low bone mineral density in youth and collegiate uh, runners specifically, as well as the prevalence of bone stress injury and factors associated with low bone density and bone stress injury. However, um, I am a sports dietitian and I am a um, professor, I, uh, associate professor now, um, but I, I teach sports nutrition. And so through as being an instructor, um, teaching sport nutrition and um, really teaching about dietary supplements in those classes, um, really was able to see this whole um, area as being an area that we need a lot more um, of education and awareness in terms of dietary supplements. Um, how they're regulated and um, how they are regulated really in a very limited way. Uh, the students that I taught really um, were very interested in the topic of dietary supplements and risks associated with supplement use. And um, from the time I started teaching in 2012, we really um, were seeing that there was not a lot of studies that were out there in terms of the prevalence of supplement use in collegiate athletes here in the U.S. Um, there was a lot of uh, research on Olympic athletes in terms of supplement use in very elite athletes, but not in at the collegiate level and, and especially not at the youth level. Um, so really became interested in this additional area of research looking at dietary supplements um, around that time. And um, started a study with a with a graduate student and another faculty member, um, and we were able to collect data looking at supplement use in almost 600 collegiate athletes. So that was really the first study that I um, pursued in the area of dietary supplements, and then did some more specialized studies in collegiate runners, and then eventually in this study with the youth runners, which was really exciting study um, with Dr. Uh, Adam 1040, and uh, we were able to. Uh, collect data on over 2,000 uh, youth runners and to look at their supplement use. 
Yeah, that's great. I would imagine that that the collegiate level, so much of their programs are so much structured in terms of supplement use. Many times they're given to them by the program itself, right? They're very, very regimented as to how much to take, how many times a day to take it, um, even if it's just vitamin D uh, supplements or whatever it may be. Uh, but I'm guessing that at middle school level, and and, and not to, to get too far ahead of ourselves, we'll get there shortly. Uh, I've assumed there's there's no instruction or regulation on how it's being done. Right, right. Yeah, at the collegiate level, they have their compliance meeting every year, and they provide education about supplements and um, you know their specific policies. Every school is a little bit different, and the policies will evolve. Um, so that yeah, there is some oversight and regulation and education at the collegiate level. Um, however, we still didn't know what was the prevalence. Um, we we that wasn't um, there weren't a lot of studies available on that. Um, and so, but yes, there is definitely that support at the collegiate level. Whereas at the high school and middle school level, uh, much, much more limited. Yeah. I was going to say, have you, has there been any prior work published in this area in terms of supplement use in, in middle school? So the um, National Health um, and Examination uh, Nutrition Service, so the NHANES, um, looks oh, yeah. at um, a more national sample. Um, and so there are different age groups where they report on dietary supplement use, um, but that's more just generalized for the U.S. population. And so, yeah, there is definitely data uh, available on the U.S. population that is stratified by age group and has been reported, but just specifically looking at a larger sample of youth runners. Uh, to our knowledge, that was this has been the first study to look at that um, to this specific research question. So maybe before we get into this particular study, can you just give us a little bit of a of a of a background on what you consider to be dietary supplements, or what are they? What kind of categories they might fall into? I mean, I could think of anything from a multivitamin, all the way up to you know protein enhancers or other other gamuts as well. So I mean, what 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 can you describe that for us? Provide a little bit of of the foundation. Sure. So um, in terms of what is a dietary supplement. So it's a product that contains what's called a dietary ingredient. So there's a lot of different types of these dietary ingredients, which um, I can go into a little more, but um, they're packaged as like a tablet, a liquid powder, a a capsule um, taken by mouth, and it's intended to supplement the diet. Um, But these ingredients that can be included in dietary supplements, so we know like vitamins, minerals, but also herbs and botanical ingredients, amino acids acids, uh, fatty acids, um, any other approved dietary supplements, uh, uh, substance. So these would be um, some of the main types of ingredients that would be included in dietary supplements. But just to be clear as well, we're, are we, we're not talking about uh, performance enhancers. Uh, is that is that not necessarily the case here, right? This is just dietary supplements. That's right. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So let's let's jump in then to this particular study. Then again, uh, for our listeners, the name of this, uh, the title of the study is Dietary Supplement Intake and Factors Associated with Increased Use in Pre-Adolescent Endurance Runners. And it was published in the Journal of Academic Nutrition and Diet. Oh, probably getting that wrong because that's the PubMed abbreviation. So I'm guessing there's another more extended name for it. Um, and Michelle Barrick is a, is the lead author. And as you mentioned, Dr. Adam 1040 is, uh, is the senior author for this. It was just published published in uh, March of 2022. All right. So as we start off, um, 
describe a little bit of the overall designs for it. I can imagine being in middle school uh, that it can be challenging. You mentioned already several thousand uh, individuals who took part in it. So that's a huge scope. I'm guessing these weren't one-on-one interviews that you conducted. That's right. Yes. So I was involved in assisting Dr. 1040, among some of the other co-authors with the development of a survey. And so we had gathered questions from previous work that we had done with youth athletes, high school athletes. And so, yeah, so there was a survey. It was about, um, I think about, took about 15, 20 minutes to complete and it it was administered uh, by email. So, um, Dr. 1040 was involved, uh, the primary uh, investigator for the study. So he was involved in the recruitment aspect of the study, but it was, um, it went out to um, a variety of coaches, organizations, and then the word got spread to athletes through various um, avenues. And there was, um, yeah, so that um, administration just um, by email. And so, yeah, there was a, a, a significant, I think, distribution of the survey then um, and participation by the athletes, which was, which was really exciting to see. Did it end up representing a pretty wide geographic uh, geographical scope or was it limited to more of where Adam's at out in Massachusetts or where you're at in California? Where was it typically? Yeah. So the youth runners were representing uh, the New England region. Uh, yes. So it was more the East coast um, areas where the, uh, the, the data was collected from. It was, it was a survey that was conducted once, had the athletes report what they were doing. And then from there looking and trying to identify use patterns or trends and maybe some associations within that data. Yeah, that's right. The data was collected in in May 2020. And so it was um, collected among athletes that had run in the previous cross country season. So they had completed at least one cross country season in the previous fall, uh, maybe more. Um, And it was that uh, the the previous or the spring after that season is when the data Got it. So what what sort of hypotheses did you have going into it? What did you expect to find among among pre-adolescents in terms of dietary use, supplemental use? Yeah, so we had done a previous study. So the study that we had first done among collegiate athletes, we had uh, found about a 42% prevalence of supplement use, and it was habitual supplement use. So it was consistent, regular supplement use over the past year. Um, And then uh, did a follow-up study looking specifically at collegiate runners, collegiate um, endurance runners, and found, and this was looking at supplement use regular supplement use actually over the past month and found about 80% of the runners had reported supplement use. So it was much higher we found in the endurance runners than just the overall uh, collegiate athlete uh, population. So um, because there had been no prior studies in youth runners, we really were unsure about what we would see in terms of prevalence um, um, because we had seen a higher prevalence in the collegiate runners, but then um, youth overall tend to have a lower prevalence uh, as compared to the general population. So about uh, previous studies from the NHANE survey had reported about 25, 30% of youth take dietary supplements. So uh, we really were unsure. Um, However, there was some previous data to suggest that there may be um, some significant use based on the collegiate um, and um, just general population. I noticed when you, um, in the methods, you you defined an air, uh, a type or a, a category of supplement as a higher risk supplement. What Can you describe what that is and what, what are some examples of higher risk supplement? Yeah, so um, because of the um, more limited 
method of regulation of dietary supplement use in the United States. Um, there are some risks associated with supplements. So um, sub, in terms of the regulations, so um, according to what's called the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, um, the manufacturer of a supplement is actually responsible for ensuring that a supplement is considered safe before going out on the market, um, that there's no requirement for getting FDA approval before a supplement goes out on the market. And the manufacturer is also responsible for making sure that the product label information is truthful um, on the supplement. So, um, you know, Overall, you know, people will take supplements and, um, you know, it, it, they, um, there may or may not be an adverse event, but, but because of this type of regulation, there's a higher risk of what's called adverse um, events. And so what's been reported in the literature is that the type of supplements that have been associated with the higher prevalence of adverse events are these higher risk supplements. So um, these would be considered, um, so there's a various categories here. So um, those that are herbal supplements. So herbal supplements have been have been associated with higher risk. Um, various herbal ingredients um, have been associated with uh, various um, yeah, health health concerns and also um, caffeinated supplements. So supplements containing caffeine. Um, the amount of caffeine in these products are not regulated, so it may be a higher concentration. Uh, some individuals are more caffeine sensitive, or if it's more concentrated, then that's associated with higher risk. Uh, weight loss supplements pre-workout supplements, as well as muscle building supplements. So these are the subcategories of supplements that are considered these higher risk. Again, the herbal, caffeinated, weight loss, pre-workout, and muscle building supplements. So um, in collegiate athletes, we had found that um, approximately 8% of athletes were taking these higher risk supplements. And so we wanted to look at the prevalence of that as well. Um, it was a second secondary aim of the study in the youth runners um, to see how many were taking those higher risk products. So actually, oh, go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, this is definitely going to expose my uh, naivety when it comes to supplements. So you, you you say these categories, and I think, well, I, I don't know, I can't even think of another category that's not high risk. Are there other categories that are, quote unquote, low risk? If I'm talking to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, that's a lower risk category, so to speak, are there, what are, what are some categories that are lower risk of, of supplements? Yeah, so um, any supplement, because of the limited level of regulation, um, you there is a potential risk of adverse events or also in competitive athletes, uh, risk for a, a banned substance being okay. in that product. Um, but yeah, other, other um, you know, supplement categories, you know, multivitamin and minerals, um, amino acids, uh, fatty acids, probiotics, you know, there's a, you know, other um, other types of supplements that wouldn't be considered in that higher risk category. Um, but at the same time, because of the limited level of regulation that any product could be potentially higher risk. So we do uh, recommend for athletes, um, and I don't know if this is the best time or if we want to wait to the end to go over, you know, these safeguards, but <laughs> there are a number of safeguards that athletes can take to reduce the risk and to, um, for example, you know, choose a supplement that has been third-party tested, have underground chemical um, analysis to ensure, you know, what's in the supplement. And so there are safeguards that athletes can take to reduce those risks as well. 
Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say, I would imagine the, the pre-workout or the caffeine containing like the energy drinks or the energy bars, those are, you see them everywhere, yeah. I mean, whether it's related to pre-workout or not. It could just be a middle of a day drink or it could just be a lunch drink for that matter. I mean, they're, they are not shy about taking their, their energy drinks. Right. Yeah, they are really popular. And so especially those that are regulated as a supplement. Um, so you can look at the back of the bottle or container or product if it says a supplement facts label um, as compared to a nutrition facts label. If you have a supplement facts label, that product is being regulated using the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. And um, yeah, these products are not required to be registered with the FDA before going out on the market. And, um, so you really need to um, be wary um, and cautious when taking those types of products. That's, so that's actually an excellent point. So what we're saying is that we should all be looking at those back of the bars or the drinks and saying, does it say supplement information or nutritional information? And that gives you the indication of what level of, of regulation it's, it has, being that if it says supplement, it's less regulated. If it says nutritional information, it's more regulated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, that's a nugget right there. That's there it good. is. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the a pearl. Nugget. That's a good, that's a good. <laughs> when I go home and go through my 14 year old's uh, pre-workout <laughs> closet, <laughs> when I get home and see what he's got. <laughs> All right. So what kind of findings do you have for us, Michelle? So what, what, what sort of behaviors are the pre-adolescents showing when it comes to dietary supplement use? Yeah, so what we found is overall um, about half, so it was about 47% of the youth runners reported taking a dietary supplement product or sports food. So there were different categories that we looked at. So the dietary supplement is, um, you know, what we had mentioned previously. So um, multivitamin, mineral or botanical, fatty acid, amino acids. So um, those are the supplement products. Um, so about 26% of those, um, the youth runners reported taking a dietary supplement specifically, and then about 30% reported taking a sports food, which is, um, so these are food products. These have the nutrition facts label, but they are still um, intending to supplement like your re regular meals. So protein bars, drinks, energy bars, carbohydrate, electrolyte drinks. Um, so yeah, so those are the specific categories that we looked at. Um, the most popular supplements were multivitamin and mineral products, calcium and vitamin D. Um, and so this is pretty consistent with what we see overall. Typically, multivitamins are the most popular supplements. Some individual vitamins and minerals also fairly common. Um, what we see with the overall U.S. population as well as with other um, youth and adolescent athletes from national surveys. Uh, what was interesting is we looked at comparisons between girls and boys. So the female youth runners versus the male youth runners, uh, we found that the female youth runners had, as compared to the boys, um, they were more likely to take or had a higher prevalence of taking the multivitamin and mineral supplements, uh, vitamin D, calcium, but also iron and probiotics. Um, only uh, there are four uh, runners in this sample that uh, reported taking uh, diet pills. And so those were also only female. So those would be um, some differences. And then boys were more likely to take creatine, 
And then they were also more likely to uh, report using sports foods. So boys overall took a lot more reported uh, higher use of just the you know protein bars, drinks, energy bars, uh, carbohydrate, electrolyte drinks as compared to girls. Did that surprise you at all in terms of the, the boys versus girls differences? It seems like that would fall along what you'd almost expect to find. Yeah, I think that uh, was uh, pretty consistent with, with what we um, were expecting or hypothesizing, what we've seen from previous studies. I think the difference in the sports food use was interesting. Um, I wasn't necessarily anticipating seeing higher use of you know energy bars, um, you know, carbohydrate, electrolyte drinks, protein bars, drinks in the boys as compared to the girls. Um, but it, you know, it does make sense. Um, but that was, I think, a new finding that we hadn't um, seen previously. Um, what we also looked at was factors that were associated with higher use of supplements. And so this is something where um, we had looked at this previously in the collegiate runner study that we had looked at dietary supplement use and kind of merging the areas that I'm, you know, interested in studying is supplement use, but also um, factors associated with energy deficiency, factors associated with low bone density. So we're looking at various um, of these factors and if they were uh, associated with higher or lower use of supplements. Um, but what we found is that um, some factors that, um, you know, consistent with eating patterns, consistent with bone density, injury, consistent with potentially um, under fueling um, being associated with the supplement use. So for example, those that reported weight loss in the past year uh, were about eight times more likely to report use of supplements as compared to those that did not report weight loss in the past year. Um, history of bone stress injury. So those with a history of bone stress injury were about three times more likely to report supplement use. Um, those that were uh, reported skimming meals were also um, reported higher use of supplements. Uh, those youth runners following a vegetarian uh, or vegan diet were about four times more likely to report supplement use, um, as well as those currently attempting to gain weight. So associated with weight loss, um, trying to gain weight, skipping meals, injury, vegetarian diet, um, and then females overall were more likely to use supplements. So it was just um, interesting to see some of these factors associated with the um, higher use of supplements and yeah. uh, higher prevalence of supplement use. So with, when it comes like the, the finding that bone stress injuries, those who had a history of bone stress injury were more likely to use supplements or at least had a higher usage of supplements. Was that, did you, were you able to break it down into what type of supplement they were using? I would assume it'd be like vitamin D and calcium and similar, but anything there that you're able to drill down farther in? Right. So we didn't look at the specific um, type of uh, supplement associated with bone stress injury, it was more looking at overall use of supplements. But um, in the collegiate sample, this was also something that we found, and it was more related to the use of like calcium, vitamin D. So that was not unexpected. Um, but because, you know, obviously someone with the bone stress injury wants to do whatever they can to help to, um, you know, optimize their bone density, bone strength. And so, you know, any even part of the treatment plan often is recommending calcium and vitamin D. I'm curious if at this age, if if you're able to discern at all what drove their use of the supplements, was it the athlete themselves? Was it parental? Was it healthcare workers? Was it coaches? Did you have a sense of where that was coming from? 
And we didn't have any questions about that in the survey. So I think as a follow-up, that would be really interesting to look at. Um, why were they taking supplements? What was their motivations uh, surrounding supplement use? Where did they get their information about mm -hmm. diet and supplements? So um, we have looked at that previously in the collegiate athletes. Um, we kind of wanted to streamline this survey. Um, but uh, yeah, oftentimes we see in uh, collegiate athletes that um, definitely a motivation for optimizing health, really um, what is interesting is we often see that as the primary motivation, not even, you know, I want to enhance my performance that they really report taking supplements because they want to improve their overall health. So uh, that's something we often see um, in terms of where we get supplement information. There's just like a huge range of uh, uh, sources of information for supplements, and it's not always um the dietitian where they get the information. It's often you know, parents or family, teammates, coaches. That's where, you know, the information is largely coming from. Um, so really wanting to promote that outreach and education about supplement use, potential risks, and how to promote safe use of supplements is really something that we would like to, you know, promote for the athletes, teams, families, coaches. This is such great work because I mean we've know we know that the area when it comes to to running and youth pre adolescence in particular there's just a such a, a lack of knowledge in that space and this really helps define at least the landscape a bit in one of those areas um, in in the youth distance runners and it's certainly an important area that will allow for those future studies to be able to build from and hopefully even get to the point where we can make sure that those runners in that demographic are receiving the best information that they can and or to determine quality information from it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's definitely the goal. Yeah, even even awareness, I feel like this this has been good for me already. You know, like, okay, yeah, like okay, yeah, this is, you know, a lot of stuff I'm already just making me more aware and and so it's a good step for sure. So we appreciate that. For sure. So what what's what future research do you have? What's the what's the fun stuff that you have going on right now that we have to invite you back for in a couple of years <laughs> or sooner? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's just uh, I think related a bit to what you've been mentioning and just in terms of getting that information out to athletes. So we've been doing in the past a lot of um, just assessments of factors associated with risk of bone stress injury, factors associated with risk of low bone density, factors associated with higher supplement use. And now we really want to move into this phase of outreach and education. So we are um, doing some intervention studies and nutrition education studies. Um, I've worked on a study with um, high school, some high school teams doing a nutrition education curriculum a few years ago and um, just had that study recently published. It was a pilot study, a smaller study, and um, have been working for a number years now with some um, collegiate athlete teams um, within the Pac-12. So working with Dr. Aurelia Nativ at UCLA and um, Dr. Michael Fredrickson at Stanford and Adam uh, Ted Forty has also been part of these studies doing some um, nutrition education interventions with collegiate runners. Um, so recently have expanded to working with a few schools to now working um, with more of the Pac-12 schools and doing um, a nutrition education at a larger scale with collegiate runners. So um, that study is currently in process and has um, been really exciting to work with, um, you know, the collegiate level teams, um, learning about best approaches for promoting this information and providing that education and um, 
taking what we're learning from this study and also expanding to the high school and to the middle school um, athletes, because, you know, that's really oftentimes when we form various habits and, uh, you know, learn about various eating habits, behaviors, and um, also at the you know, youth and middle school level, high school level, that's really a, a critical period of development in terms of building bone mass. And there's this critical window of opportunity um, during adolescence between ages around 11 or 12 up to around, you know, 16 or 17, where, you know, really a majority of bone mass is being accrued. So it's really important to you know, promote these habits that, um, you know, optimize energy and nutrient intake and reduce uh, risk to really optimize bone mass for your whole life. So um, really working to expand these intervention and education efforts to uh, middle school, youth, high school, high school runners. That's fantastic. And if you've got the time, we will definitely bring you back on to talk about that stuff. I would love to hear more on it and what your findings are. I think it's got widespread implications. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely an area that I'm really passionate about and really excited about. So Michelle, where's a good place we can uh, like look for just finding safe supplements or, or some way that we can, I guess, make our best approach to this? Sure. Great. Yeah. So there are some organizations that do chemical analysis for these dietary supplements. Um, so the, there are several. So one is the National Sanitation Foundation. Um, so this is the most, most commonly used organization. Um, they have what's called an NSF certified for sport list. And so for these supplements that are on the NSF certified for sport list, um, ensures that or um, verifies is that the products that have been tested um, do not contain banned substances, that the supplement ingredients match what's on the label, um, don't contain unsafe level of um, contaminants. And so, um, you know, still there's always a potential risk, but at least that this is um, one safeguard that can be used by athletes is to, um, to go to the NSF certified for sport list. Um, also working with a sports dietitian um, can be very helpful in terms of getting that guidance um, because having, um, you want to have a nutrition uh, assessment before, ideally before taking a supplement, um, you know, you don't want to take a supplement unnecessarily. So working with a dietitian um, in concert with using the NSF certified for sport list can be really um, helpful as a safeguard. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Michelle Barrick. Thank you once again for all of your work in this area and for taking the time to join us today, Michelle. Great. Thank you so much. Really and for our listeners, you can find a link to Michelle's great work from that we were uh, discussed today on our website. Uh, it's from the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Uh, the link is on our website where you can access the abstract and the paper. All right. Well, again, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, also, don't forget to check out the updates on the 2022 Mountland Running Summit, September 29th through October 1st at summit.mlrehab.com. And as always, you can find more information on all of the running medicine resources offered by Mountland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com slash run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people 
may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.